Hey, I'm Spencer Powell and welcome to Remodeler Stories, where we highlight remodelers. Every remodeler has a unique story and journey and we can all learn from each other. Stay tuned for a mix of inspiration, tactical tips, unique strategies, and some laughter. The remodeling business is tough, but rewarding, and we're all in this together. Let's kick this thing off. Before we get into today's show, let's talk about our show sponsor, Remodeler Growth Community. Remodeler Growth Community is a peer-to-peer networking group exclusively for remodelers. For a low monthly fee, you get access to some of the best minds in the industry, life-changing business strategies, and the ability to connect and learn from people who've walked the path you walk. Go to remodelercommunity.com to enroll today. 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back, so there's absolutely no risk to you. Go to remodelercommunity.com to enroll today. Today, I sit down with Bob Deeks. He is the president of RDC Fine Homes, an award-winning high-performance builder and renovation company operating out of Whistler and servicing the south coast of BC. Bob is a past president of CHBABC, past chair of the CHBA National Technical Research Committee and Net Zero Council, a member of the Standing Committee for Energy Efficiency with Codes Canada, and currently sits as co-vice chair of the BC Energy Step Code Council. Now for the conversation with Bob Deeks. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for today. Maybe just give people the rundown. Who are you? What's the company and where are you located? All right. I am Bob Deeks. I run a renovation and new construction company called RDC Fine Homes. And our head office is based out of Whistler, British Columbia. People may remember Whistler from the 2010 Winter Olympics. Winter Olympics hosted both by Vancouver and Whistler. Our business operates from just north of Whistler to a town called Pemberton all the way through into what is referred to as the North Shore of Vancouver. So North Vancouver, West Vancouver, that area. Right on. Good deal. And and did you start the company or how did it all get going? I started a very, very small operation back in the early 90s when I think we hit a bit of a recessionary downturn and the guys I had had been working for the year before didn't have any work. And so I went out and hit the pavement and found a few jobs on our own and one thing led to another, and here we are today. We have staff of about 35 people and busy and throughout the entire corridor. Gotcha. Yeah, that's awesome. So you said you kind of you started it kind of during recessionary times. Is that something that you did because it had always been on your list to do, or it was just happenstance, or you know, what prompted you to say, Let, let's get this going? Well, I think it, at the time it was absolutely out of need mm-hmm. to find a paycheck. I had been happily working for a custom home builder the previous couple of years. And that was great. Good paycheck, easy. In those days, I was coaching ski racing in the winter and was really looking for a carpenter's job in the summers just to pay the bills. I had experience running my own business. When I went through university, I ran a painting and window washing company to pay tuition and cover expenses. So I certainly knew what it was all about. And so I don't think I really had any trepidation about starting out, but it really absolutely was out of need to get a paycheck. And there just was so little work out there. And everybody who had work seemed to be doing it on their own. And I got lucky, stumbled across somebody who needed some services and we jumped in and never looked back. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I find, you know, a lot of businesses are started that way. And then, you know, you just put one foot in front of the other. And then like you said, here you are, like 35 people and rocking and rolling on 
lot of yeah. different things. Maybe talk to me about just the first few years, maybe some early wins, but also just some some tough lessons. You know, I know the first few years look very different than probably today. My first opportunity really came Whistler being a resort community, lots of hotels. One of my previous employers had been doing maintenance work for a manager who had two of the larger hotels in the village in Whistler. And the guy I'd been working for just was not responding. And so the hotel manager had dug up my phone number. I mean, we'd had lots of conversations in the previous year when I'd been working there. So he basically called me in a panic and said, I, you know, I have this critical work that needs to be done. Are you available? And this would have been just as the coaching ski racing season had wrapped up and I hadn't been able to secure anything. So I, you know, it was like, absolutely. I can, <laughs> I can do that. And so I grabbed one of my roommates and headed into the village with not a whole lot of sophistication because, of course, my background was not as a carpenter. I had a commerce degree and had come really from the advertising industry, but I had, my dad was always fixing stuff. And so I was, I was somewhat handy. And that's how I had been sort of paying the bills in the summertime is essentially pretending to be a carpenter and learning as I went. And so, yeah, we jumped in with those with, with that one individual and I think spent the majority of that summer fixing and renovating hotel rooms. And then sort of that definitely, you know, that one thing led to another. So yeah, our, our start really was in the remodeling side on, on commercial buildings. Moved forward to, I think, 1994 and an acquaintance of mine was super keen on doing a spec house. And of course, in those days, we had no Real, there was no marketing strategy. It was ski season finishes and you start looking around, okay, I need something to do. And so we built a spec house in 1994. That was not a great experience. <laughs> mm, why is that? Partner decided very early on that swinging a hammer was not something that he enjoyed doing. So he just basically disappeared. So I, I built the house with some friends, got it done. We started in April, finished it just before Christmas. So kind of doing double duty there, coaching during the day and working at night to get the house finished. Of course, you know, we had no real understanding of where the market was. I was always very focused on doing the best possible job. So of course, overspent like crazy, building a much better house than the market was prepared to pay for. And uh, it was, I mean, great experience in terms of, okay, I finally built my first house, which gave us some pedigree to go, you know, sell our services to others. And, uh, you know, as, as we move forward, by 1997, we were building and renovating luxury houses here, and in a community was really, you know, well suited. It's a luxury resort, so we found ourselves in a good market there. And I think my, you know, my attention to detail and my sort of steadfast commitment to doing it right, and sometimes maybe doing it too right, certainly has served us well in terms of our brand recognition over the years. Yeah, so yeah a bit of a lumpy start, you know trying to figure out one way or the other. And, you know, that, that journey continues. There's lots of good stories there too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always find it fascinating, you know, just hearing you describe the experience of building the spec home and it not being a good one, just from the standpoint of you didn't necessarily take into fact, like the market conditions and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm sure there were numerous lessons within that, but, you know, I feel like you hit the end of that, you get through it, and some people go, nope, and they exit stage right. They're like, this is not for me. What made you go the other way and say, like, let's do some more of that? <laughs> I think, I, you know, I started to really appreciate that, you know, one, I, I've never really played well with others. And so it was, I was, you know, definitely coming to the realization that I was best suited to running my own business. I like telling other people what to do. I didn't like other people telling me what to do. And I, you know, I think in general, 
you know, it's super flexible. You know, you run your own business. You can essentially, as, as long as you meet your client's expectations, you can do what you want. Mm-hmm. And that super, that, that really suited me. And I, in those days, I was passionate about ski racing and, and coaching. And so it, it kind of gave me this double life where I could go off on the mountain for five to six months of the year. And I think I, I really enjoyed that transition from going from working hard in the summer. In those days, I was on the tools doing the whole gambit. And then that break would come at the end of October, beginning of November, where I put the tools down and get back on the hill and do something that I really was super excited and loved doing. And so I I think that's really what kept me in the game, despite some of the ups and downs. And I think any of us who... I mean, one of the the interesting things of the the remodeling renovation business or custom home building is... I don't think a lot of us ever had any formal training. You know, mm, yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't even have any formal Red Seal carpentry training. I learned everything from the people I worked with, and I worked with some really great people who taught me a lot. It was always a quick study, but unfortunately, our industry, I think, is is the, the school of hard knocks, and you learn by your mistakes. If you survive, then you get you become really good at it. And, and unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people who don't survive because there's so little formal training to set people up for success. And I look at some of my colleagues who, who have taken over a family business and, and really had that opportunity to learn from somebody who had previously made those mistakes. And yeah, I, I you know, to some degree, I wish I had that, had had that opportunity, although it certainly made for a very interesting career. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, what do you think are like one or two of those mistakes that stand out to you that you would want to pass along for somebody that maybe hasn't made them yet and they might be able to avoid it if they they hear from you? Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who is really keen to get into this industry and would like to run their own business, my best advice is, is go find the company that has the strongest brand recognition in your area and go get a job. You know, I think that for what we do, it's really important to understand how buildings go together. So is a small renovator or renovation business or remodel business or small custom home building business, you need to understand and you need to have a lot of skills. So while I think that education in the trades is a huge opportunity for young people today, men and women. So if you're interested on the carpentry side, then go and get your journeyman's ticket and, and learn those basic skills from the ground up. Go work for somebody who takes pride in what they do, has a great track record, knows how to manage their clients' expectations. And on the flip side, if you're going to run your own business, you need to understand the business side of it. And so I'd have to say that while my formal education was in commerce and I've transitioned, you know, I transitioned over to wearing a tool belt, that university education has saved my ass. You know, my the background in accounting and marketing and systems operations and all those things that I kind of took for granted in my early 20s when I was at university as you sort of churn your way through that education because somebody told you you had to get this education. That has come back and served me since I started my own business. And so I think anybody who's going down this path is understand your trade, go get certified, go work for somebody who's exceptional at, at what they do and learn from them, figure out what their systems are, what do they do well, do they need help with, and then make sure you have some sort of formal education that helps you run a good business. It's amazing how many people out there really just don't understand the basics yeah. of how to operate a good business. And we see that, you know, we have t- trades who are exceptional at executing the work once they have a tool in their hand and they're on site, but some of them are so bad at running their business. Yeah. Um, and it's because that training, it's hard to find. But again, it comes back to go work for somebody who does a great job 
and learn from them. And maybe that replaces a formal education on the business management side, or you got to dig deep and you got to do both, right? Like go online, get, you know, do the night school, figure, you know, accounting, marketing, economics, client management, process, system processes, just always figuring out how to do things a bit better. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, it's so funny. You talked about, you know, going through university and learning the stuff. And when you're at that age and in that zone, you're not necessarily thinking, you're just like, I'm, it's like a checklist. Like I got to get through this. And then the yeah. power of perspective is like, oh, now that I know what I know, like I, <laughs> I could have used some of oh. that, you know, well, I just, <laughs> I was in high school. I was, I was so bad at math. I mean, I grew up in Ontario where we had grade 13. And so I failed grade 12 math. And the deal that they made is they wouldn't force me to go to summer school to do grade 12 math over again, as long as I agreed not to take math in grade 13. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I hate math. Yeah. And deal. then I and then I became a carpenter and I was like, oh my God, all that math that had no meaning to me in grade 9, 10, 11, all of a sudden is so valuable here as I sit here trying to figure out roof angles and you know, all kinds of stuff in carpentry. And, you know, another good message that I have and I, you know, I tell my kids all the time is yes, this stuff may not make a whole lot of sense to you now, but you know, these basic skills are going to serve you so well if you pay attention today. And anybody out there who wants to be a carpenter, pay attention to uh, geometry and algebra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny how sometimes all takes is the meaning, right? Like once you're out there and you needed it suddenly like oh i better learn this yeah drag, dragging it all back out yeah exactly i want to get back to the the journey a little bit you kind of talked about doing the, the ski racing and everything and then building and kind of going back and forth is that what you've done the whole time or did you make a shift where it was like full-time full-time business yeah as, as i was into my late 30s i started to realize i couldn't have a, a foot in both camps on the remodel new construction side, it was getting too big and too complicated. And, you know, ski racing was, a, was really fun, but it's very hard to build a career unless you're prepared to spend your life traveling. Yeah. Because as you climb that ladder, performance ladder to get better compensation and, you know, more exciting, potentially more exciting full-time opportunities. Yeah. Hard to have a family. And I, I looked at so many colleagues that I had in the industry who were divorced. Yeah. It's so hard to manage a relationship when you're never home. And so in the late, in the early 2000s, actually, I made a decision to step away from ski racing side and focus 100% on construction. And then, interestingly, I got dragged back coaching on weekends through the 2000s, started to have my own kids, stepped away again. And now my daughter, who is going to be 14 this year, got into ski racing four years ago. And so I've been pulled back. So now much, I think much to my wife's dismay. Yeah. I've been the last two winters, I've been coaching again on the weekends, which has been fun, but it's, yeah, you end up, there's no rest for the wicked. Yeah. 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 Uh, That's a lot, but I'm sure it's, it's fun since it's your daughter. Yeah, it, it's fun. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> Once I, I sort of put ski racing aside in the two thousands and really started to feel, you know, focus on, on building a business and, and creating a niche market for us. We were, we were in a very you know, a busy market, but with a lot of competition. And we were sort of starting out. And of course, I hadn't been really at it full, full time, 12 months of the year. So I think we were always a little behind there. And that's when in the, in the sort of late 90s and early 2000s, I really started to see an opportunity for, you know, an environmental consideration to how we build houses. And 
I really spent a lot of time trying to figure that, you know, understanding first, because we had a lot of opportunity to take down old buildings or to renovate existing structures and understanding there was a lot of value in some of those older structures. And the very first luxury house that I built, actually, we bought a property with that had an old house on it, but that old house had been significantly renovated by the homeowner less than 10 years before we bought it. And so while the renovation had not been super well done and the existing house literally was rotting out from underneath it, there was all this material in there. And so I actually found a guy, he was probably more ignorant than I was. So I actually got him to agree to take the whole house down and so that very little of it would go to landfill. And he wanted to build his own house. And he saw what I saw is there's all, you know, there's there's all this material that's less than 10 years old, insulation and wiring and plumbing piping and framing materials and windows and the whole thing. So he brought a team of like 25 people to this site for a long, I think it was a long weekend in May. And they completely dismantled this house and carted it away on flatbed truck and with, with the intent that he was going to use all those materials and rebuild it. And so wow. that was a real epiphany for me is like, wow, you know, we can, we can do a much better job here. We don't have to be putting all this material in the landfill. And so we went through that process and then into the 2000s really started to look at how do we build a better house, you know, mm-hmm. indoor, indoor air quality and thermal comfort, energy efficiency, all those things. I started to learn more and more about them. And, you know, that's where we are today is, you know, we, we truly, I think, are seen as one of the leaders, not only in our local area, but provincially and nationally in terms of our knowledge base on building that, what would, the industry would, would talk about renovating or building high-performance houses. And, you know, interestingly, we've done two full remodels where we've remodeled the house to a net zero energy standard. We did the first awesome. one in British Columbia three years ago, and we finished our second one at Christmas of this year. So the, those are super exciting projects is to take a really... The, the first one we did was like a 1978 cabin on a lake that a homeowner had built, not particularly well, but <laughs> you know, a, a, a craftsman style house. So the house still had lots of value, good foundation. You know, the framing was all solid. And we were able to transform that house literally into a, you know, a, a new looking residence to that net zero energy standard in that quite quite cold climate. So that's exciting cool. opportunities there. Hey guys, I know that if you listen to Builder Funnel Radio, you are hyper aware of the fact that the way people shop and buy, it's changed dramatically over the years. And for the last 10 years, really since I started doing all this, helping my uncle's remodeling division scale up from about 2 million to 10 million, We've been helping remodelers and builders and contractors all over the country really refine their marketing systems. And I recently decided to kind of bottle all of that up into my first book. And that book is called The Remodeler Marketing Blueprint. And you can pick up a copy by going to the website, remodelermarketingblueprint.com. You can also search for it on Amazon or wherever books are sold online. But I highly recommend you go over to the website because we've got some cool book bonuses that go along with that if you pick up a few extra copies for your friends and colleagues or your teammates. So it would mean a lot to me if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or even just a few episodes, if you've ever gotten any value out of it, head over to remodelermarketingblueprint.com and snag your copy today. All right, let's get back to the show. Do you feel like today, now that you guys have been pushing on this for quite a while, is that why people come to you? Or like what percentage of your customers feel like 
do you feel like that's kind of the deciding factor because they see you as the expert in in that kind of niche as you described it? I think so. Although, as you may, as some of your listeners may or may not be aware, and of course, this is not unique to Canada, we see energy efficiency being codified. And so, ten years ago, there were a limited number of people who were really focused on this, and you could see through the gross of passive house that 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 niche market started to grow. Those early adopters really started to focus on the environmental. And in those days, it was entirely on the environmental benefits of saving energy. You know, we figured out earlier on that, you know, all the things that you did to save energy in a house actually created a better living experience. You know, you had better thermal comfort throughout the house and ventilation was so important as we built airtight, energy efficient houses. And so by putting in whole home ventilation systems with heat recovery, I just created much better environment, you know, for people like the smells are getting exhausted and the air is always fresh and, and that sort of thing. And so while our focus initially was simply on sustainable building practices and energy efficiency, where we ended up landing, and I think, you know, in part where our brand landed was an ability to deliver, you know, we, we talked about a better built house, but you know, a house that was evenly warm in winter and summer and had really good air quality and and was durable. And as a side benefit of all those things, had lower energy costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you talk about the mistakes that you make. You know, some of my early client experiences were not great because we didn't understand how to manage clients' expectations. And so I, I think I very, very quickly started to try and understand how to meet people's expectations better. And of course, a big part of that is budgets and schedules. But while budgets and schedules may seem somewhat simple when you have clients who are changing their mind all the time, and I think it's you know it's been a 20-year journey for us to really nail down how to meet people's expectations and stay ahead of their changing decision-making process so that at the end of the job, you can really be confident and, and tell people, yes, we, we finished that project on time and we finished it on budget, recognizing that at the beginning of the project, the budget and schedule may have looked quite a bit different, but you are able to anticipate the client's needs as they move through and change those budgets and schedules proactively with the client's support so that they always still saw themselves as on budget and on schedule. And you know, when we go back to go work for somebody who's really good at this, they'll have a system of engaging their client in that way so that the client always feels like their expectations are being met. I mean, we we're in this business where we spend a shocking amount of money, really. You're working with people, building them the largest investment they'll ever make. And I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind because it creates an enormous amount of stress when it goes sideways. Yeah. And so that, yeah, that created some, <laughs> my gray hair, my wife says, is a consequence of one of the first luxury clients we had who was, who was very, very challenging to deal with. And I did not understand how to manage that person at all. Didn't, yeah. didn't understand how to manage the architects or the client. And it just, it went from bad to worse. Yeah. I feel like that is one of those things where it's really good advice to go like watch how somebody does it because it's just about reps. You know, there's no other way to learn that. I mean, you could read a book on it and get some ideas, but <laughs> until you kind of yeah. go through well, it, it's nice to mirror somebody else going through it. And then, and you bring up books and, you know, I think that for anybody who's going to be a successful entrepreneur running their own business, you've got to be a voracious reader. There is so much, like a, a libraries of valuable information. And I think that was something that I picked up on, you know, really quite early on, even in the late 90s, this 
I started to understand how little I really knew and that, you know, I really flying by the seat of my pants and started desperately looking around for good resources that could give me some insights, particularly when it came to managing a business and managing a team. It's difficult enough to fix people's houses, but really the, the biggest challenge is how do, you, how do you collaboratively work with a group of individuals and turn them into a team and get them all you know, moving in the same direction, making sure everybody understands the expectations are pulling together. Like that's, I think one of the, the biggest challenges for me through the 2000s was not understanding that people were not naturally going to do the things in the way that I would do them. And I, that was a, man, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. You know, I would just, so I, I would set very vague context around this. And then I would just assume that everybody was going to buy <laughs> into that in the same way that I would. And I was constantly let down. I think in the early days, it's super easy to blame the people that you're working with. And then it took too long for me to, you know, finally realize that this actually, this is my problem, right? Like if I, if I can't set, I need to set people up for success. I need to make sure they understand the context of the requirements here. And it's my responsibility to do this. And again, you know, find somebody who's really good at managing their, their team. And somebody has really good HR skills. Because you're never going to have a successful business if you don't have successful staff. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Yeah, the pe- the people part of business, whether it's client or team side, is the most challenging. Speaking of, of people, I find that there's always like a, a wacky client story or like or project over the years. Anything coming to mind that you can share? Obviously, you can leave out names and personal details and that sort of thing. But anything just kind of wild or wacky that you encountered. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I you know, we try to be more careful about who we pick to work with. There's people out there who will never be a good fit for you. They they might be a good fit for somebody else. You know, we had a a remodel project client had bought a duplex that had never been finished properly mm. and had a lot of outstanding non-conforming problems with local municipality. So the permits had never been closed out on and they had already renovated one side of the house uh, with somebody and had sold it. And so they had actually moved into the second side and were attempting to renovate that one while they were living in the residence. <laughs> oh boy. It, it, it was not going well. And uh, the municipality, they, they had approached the municipality in an attempt to bring things into conformance and they were struggling. So they, you know, somehow they came to us. So we sat down with them and we didn't understand, you know, what was going on either. And they were very aggressive about, you know, we need to get this finished. And we were trying to say, hey, we, we can't set any dates around finishing because we don't really understand what it is we need to do. They didn't have very good drawings. And the, one of the things that everybody's got to remember is people, your clients will remember what they want to remember. Mm. And so you need to be very careful in the early stages of what you communicate. And I think in the early stages, they were pushing aggressively for a, a timeline. And so at one point, the senior project manager who was on the project was you know, said, well, you know, we might, you could probably get this done in 12 weeks. That was in July. So the client, the the wife, she remembered 12 weeks from July 1st, July, August, end of September, right? We didn't have a permit. We had no design. <laughs> and so as we're heading into the early part of September, she's getting upset. She's like, you told me this would be done in September. And we were like, no, we didn't. She never let that go. And so we actually, we had a good relationship with our local building department in those days and how we did this, I'm not entirely too sure. And in the end, it, I don't think it really benefited us, but we got permission 
to start work on the house without a formal building permit, working off the back of the original building permit when the house had been built in 1994. This is 2000. Uh-huh. And a part, of, part of the other problem was is that when, when we got started on this, the owner swore that he had a building permit. Of course. And actually, and actually we didn't, as I, as I remember, we didn't realize we didn't have a building permit until we called for the first plumbing inspection because we discovered that the structure of the house had never been supported on footings. So the main bearing points coming down from the roof were sitting on the slab. And so the engineer came in because we were moving some things around and he did some exploratory work and he was like, you guys are, you need to restructurally support the whole inside of this yeah. house. So we, we'd torn up the whole bottom floor and we had all these footings board and plumber was doing his rough ends under the slab to put a new bathroom in. So we get the inspector in and he's like, you guys don't have a permit. We're like, what do you mean we don't have a permit? We have a permit. He's like, uh, <laughs> no permit. So then we, we meet with the municipality and they actually let us continue without a permit. And so we, wow. we had to hire a specialist guy who understood how the, you know, this particular problem was going to work. So we worked all the way through it and we got it. We got everything to conform. We applied for the permit and we actually never got the permit until I think the end of February. Dang. And I was, I was on vacation, I think at the beginning of March somewhere. In, I remember being in an airport and I get this phone call from the wife and she's screaming so loudly that I, I've got the phone here about, you know, how come my house isn't finished? I'm like, we still don't have your permit. Right. And so that's one of the worst experiences I have of how things started out looking so good and, mm-hmm. and just, it went left and it just went sideways faster and faster and faster. And in the end, we, we had, had to pull, we had to pull out like the yeah. relationship had gotten so fractured that there was just no way to proceed. And yeah. so we, we, wow. we, we made the house livable. We got a kitchen and a bathroom done on the upper floor. Literally we, we because the municipality had allowed us to continue working on the main part of the house, we got that work done and we got it all inspected and signed off on the whole bottom part of the house that was under the new permit. We left it to the homeowner. And then interestingly, they sold that house a year ago and we're now working for the new owners to try and finalize all the details of the municipality. Because when the owner got in, the owner was so abusive to the local building department that they, when they recognized his number, they wouldn't answer the phone. And so he finished everything without any inspections. So now we're, we're back in there trying to uncover things and fix it up. So that's one of the, yeah, that's my, that's one of our worst experiences. And, that's you know, hard. and we yeah. tried, like we, I, I yeah. was, it was so frustrating because, you know, by that point we generally understood how to do this properly. And it was just, yeah, sometimes you're going to run into those. I do. I have a clause in my contract on our cost plus contracts. That is, it's a no fault. Either party can terminate the agreement at any time. <laughs> and, and most people are, they're happy to sign it. And I've pulled it once. I had a client who had very high anxiety. And so that, you know, that was something else that I, I didn't necessarily understand is, you know, people get really mad when they get afraid. Mm, so yeah. I think that that's, and that's something that I've been trying to make my staff understand is when people are upset, it's because their anxiety is getting the better of them and they're afraid of something. Right, they're afraid that it's going to cost too much money. It's going to take too much time. That it's not going to get done right. And so, as soon as you would start to understand that that's coming from a place of fear, then I think it enables you to you know manage your client in a more effective way. And in these days, I you know I had a client who I didn't understand her anxieties 
And she would, I think, start drinking in the early afternoon. And by eight o'clock, her anxiety was getting the better of them. And, you know, everybody, I'm sure everybody knows is don't send texts out when you're upset <laughs> after you've had a few glasses of wine. And she was becoming quite abusive Man. to my staff and a little bit to me. And uh, I was actually, it was another story, like going away on vacation. And I get this, I get these, like this string of text messages from her because I was on vacation and the site superintendent was on vacation at the same time. And while you know, everything was really well organized. We hadn't communicated, I think, well enough to her to address her anxiety over who was managing her project. The, all the site works was being done and we had a subcontractor doing foundation. So it was in good hands. There was people back at home who were available. And she, yeah, she was so unpleasant that I actually sent their, I sent them a letter of termination wow. because she was, she was just too verbally abusive. And in the end, met with her and her husband when I got back from vacation. It wasn't much of a vacation. Um, and we sorted it out. And, you know, I just had, part of it is just being honest with people too. And I was like, look, you can't, you can't send threatening, verbally abusive emails to people, particularly after the workday's over. Like I just, I won't yeah. put up with this. You can't, you can't abuse my staff this way. And so we'll come back to work as long as you promise that you won't do that anymore. <laughs> and so that, and that stopped. Like that part of it is just, you, you know, yeah. being honest with your client about what, yeah. what works for you too. Right. So don't be, you got to be professional, but don't be afraid to stand up to people who are not meeting your core values. So, yeah. you know, what we do is we certainly tell our prospective clients what our core values are, you know, positive, reliable performance. We want this to be a good experience for everybody. You know, we want, I absolutely want it to be a good experience for you, Mr. and Mrs. Client, but they also have to recognize it's got to be a good experience for our staff and our trades. We're going to do what we say we we're going to do. And so, you know, that's our commitment to you, but you need to commit to us that you're going to do the same thing. And, you know, the performance part of it is we want to exceed expectations, right? And we're going to be a good fit if we all agree on those core values. And we're not going to be a good fit if like we don't live up to those core values or on the flip side, if you don't. And so, yeah, as, as you head down this road in this business, particularly on the remodel side, Pick some core values that are meaningful you for you and your team and align yourself with clients who believe in those same values. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. I love that that you're basically have that where you're like, hey, this just isn't going to work, you know, if somebody's abusing staff and that sort of thing. I mean, we had to do that one or two times over the years where it's just like, you know, it's not worth it. You know, no. <laughs> you got to treat everyone with respect. Problems will happen. We can solve them, but. We don't need to go that far. So I think that's great. Hey, Bob, I've got a couple questions to wrap us up. They're a little more like future looking. So the first one is just kind of around the industry. You know, we've seen the last two years have been pretty wild and certainly different times. What do you think are one or two things that are really standing out to you that we need to collectively be actively working to solve, not just kind of identifying as the big problems? So, you know, greenhouse gas emissions residential side of the industry is a huge consumer. We emit a lot of greenhouse gases and particularly in our, our older housing stock. And so we have enormous challenge in front of us on how to figure out how to cost effectively reduce carbon emissions from our existing building stock. And so it creates you know, a challenge for us in the remodel business, but there's an enormous opportunity there. Governments, are, you know, governments across North America and Certainly, well, you know, I think Canadians will look 
down to the United States and look at them as, as, as being energy hogs. We do know that there are lots of states that are very aggressively pursuing reductions in greenhouse gas emission targets, declaring climate emergencies. And so I can't encourage people enough to start to understand you know, effective strategies for reducing energy use in buildings, whether it's through electrification or just simply making houses more energy efficient. You know, there's a great, great technology out there called AeroBarrier. If you're doing a significant renovation on a house, they can come in and they can air seal the house with a, it's an atomized latex spray hmm. they put in under pressure inside the house. There's dealers all across the United States. You know, there, there's a cost, but if, if the house has essentially been emptied of personal possessions and you're renovating it, then you know a two to three thousand square foot house is two to three thousand dollars, and it'll do more to improve the energy efficiency and thermal comfort of that house than almost anything else that you can do. There's an easy, low cost strategy to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but at the same time, is significantly improve the thermal comfort, both winter and summer of the occupants. So there, you know, there's one tool in the toolbox, but really look for you know what are those cost effective tools that you have at your disposal. So when somebody's spending a lot of money on a cosmetic upgrade. You know, what can you do to reduce energy consumption and at the same time understanding that it's an, it can be an easy sell because the, the house will be more comfortable. And, it, you know, as, as you engage with clients, it's just start questioning them about how, how comfortable is your house in the wintertime? Are all the rooms in your house an even comfortable temperature? And, you know, what happens in the summertime? You know, does your air conditioning keep up and is every, every room in the house comfortable? Or is everybody sleeping in the basement in the, in the middle of July because it's the only place that you can survive? You know, there's a huge opportunity there, and particularly on the, on the remodel side. And governments are bringing incentives forward, whether it's interest-free loans that get attached to the title so that that investment is paid for by, and it's not paid for just by the, the first homeowner who gets started on this. It can be transferred with the title down the road. There's cash. Do things in a certain way. The government's going to give you money. So look at what's available because it can be a, a great marketing tool for you as well. Cool. Right on. And then Bob, last question is just if you could leave other remodelers, custom builders like yourself with one piece of advice or final words of wisdom, what do you want to leave people with? Read a lot of books, join a professional association. I mean, that's one thing we didn't talk about, but you know, for us, we're in a small niche market. And if I had never joined the Canadian Home Builders Association, I wouldn't know 10% of what I know today. So reach out to your colleagues in your industry be open, share the good, the bad, and the ugly, and they will share with you because we can learn a lot more from each other and we can save ourselves a lot of time, money, and grief if we can learn from everybody's good and bad experiences. So absolutely. And, and there's a great you know, national association down in the United States as there is in Canada with the Canadian Home Builders Association. And uh, yeah, become a voracious reader. There is so much. And there's, there's new books every month, great books on people's experiences. And you know, the, the books overlap, but hearing the same thing over and over and over again just helps it stick. And, and those things that are important to you will start to stick and it creates opportunities for you to create a better experience for your staff and your clients. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. That's one of the reasons we do this podcast too, so we can all learn from each other. And I found the same with the books is sometimes you just need to read the same one a few times to let more stick. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Bob, I really appreciate you carving out the time and thanks for sharing your story with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Remodeler Stories. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. 
Every month we pick a winner and send out a free copy of my book, The Remodeler Marketing Blueprint. Just leave a review over on iTunes to enter to win. See you next time.